Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Now, what do you need to do to experience more happiness? Everyone wants to answer that question. And particularly, I think at this time of year where we're all really tired, um, ready for a break, needing more time out. And what I'm going to say for today is it turns out that there's a strong link between having a finite amount of discretionary time and happiness. And I happen to personally find this is a fascinating piece of research with all sorts of implications that I think you're going to find really useful. So today we're going to delve into that, what that research says about this link between discretionary time and happiness, how you can have more happiness in your life without quitting your job. And as a heads up, this is not about mindfulness or meditation necessarily. So my guest today is Cassie Holmes. Cassie is a professor at UCLA's Anderson School of Management where she's an award-winning teacher and researcher. And Cassie's work is on the intersection of time and happiness and has been widely published in leading academic journals and featured on NPR, The Economist, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, The Atlantic, and The Washington Post. The book, Happier Hour, it's her first book, but it is all focused on this research. Um, and if you want to know more, you can find out more about her at her website, Cassie, C-A-S-S-I-E, Holmes, H-O-L-M-E-S.com. Cassie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you on. I am super excited about this one. And in fact, I just used this framework with a coaching client today. And I have to tell you, it works incredibly well. So I'm even more excited now to talk to you about it. But let me start where I always like to start with my guest, which is why. Why does this topic matter You matter to you, time and happiness? What question were you trying to address? Yeah, and it matters um, <laughs> both of those dimensions. So I, as you mentioned, I study time and happiness, and happiness matters, uh, particularly it's it's well i want to say it's not what some of us think of as an indulgent or frivolous or even selfish pursuit um research shows that when we feel happier it allows us to show up better across our domains of life um and actually help, which helps those around us out as well. So for instance, research shows that when we feel happier, it makes us more creative, more adaptive in our problem solving. That helps us in the workplace, happier employees are more engaged, better performers at work. It also helps us in our interpersonal relationships and interactions um, because studies show that when we feel happier, we like others more, we're liked by others more, makes us nicer because we're more likely to help others out. Um, there's also work that shows that it helps us in our physical well-being as well. When we feel happier, more satisfied in our lives, um, it increases our immune functioning. It makes uh, our bodies react better to physiological stressors. So all of this is to say that 
we are want to feel happy, which is a shared pursuit. And research also shows that in line with Blaise Pascal's, uh, you know, the 17th century French mathematician and philosopher observed that all men, and presumably he also meant women, seek happiness, whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. So we want to be happy. And then I would like to put on top of that, we should want to be happy because it helps us across our domains of life. Now, I will also say that I used to have to do that spiel for why happiness is important, uh, particularly teaching at a business school and prior to the pandemic. But the pandemic has taught us that we can't take our emotional well-being for granted anymore um, with anxiety rates, burnout rates, depression rates as high as they are. I actually, and organizations seeing just how important the happiness of their employees are as their workforce is less engaged and many leaving. Um, so I actually don't have to motivate it quite as much anymore because we don't take it for granted anymore. We all see the impact of it. Also with respect to time. So time <laughs> matters because how we spend the hours of our days sum up to our weeks, our months, and the years of our life. So how we spend our time quite literally constitutes the life that we are living. And the pandemic has also taught us that we can't take our time for granted anymore, either because life is fragile, life is finite. And so it seems that nowadays everyone is trying to figure out this question, which is my sort of underlying motivating research question, how do we invest the hours of our days so that we feel satisfied with our lives, so that we look back on not only our days, but our weeks and our years, feeling a sense of satisfaction and fulfillment, as opposed to what often happens in our relationship with time in this hurried doing mode, looking back and while being really busy, feeling depleted. And just because our schedules are full, it doesn't mean that we feel fulfilled. And that's what I've been looking to address well before the pandemic and my research throughout my career. Um, and certainly in the course that I teach to our MBAs and executive MBAs at UCLA, and now bringing those learnings more broadly, to readers everywhere through happier hour. That's a lot. So happiness matters in just about every way we could imagine yes. from relationships, from being liked, from liking others, from helping people, from well-being, from creativity, from adaptive problem solving. It really matters. And it seems that all humankind cares about having more happier times or more fulfilling times, we could debate about which is the right language there. Mm -hmm. Corporations are certainly seeing the impact of lack of happiness in that they're seeing lack of engagement, and they're seeking seeing the quiet quitting, and they're seeing people leaving, quitting, quitting, not just quiet quitting. Mm -hmm. And no one, I think, who's working in any large job or any job anywhere is feeling like they have plenty of time in their lives. I think only people who are not employed are feeling like they have too much time, maybe not even for them. So it's that sense of how do I spend my hours in a way that leaves me feeling fulfilled? Now, 
for many people, the belief then is that to feel fulfilled, I have to do a job that has a big social purpose attached to it. And I have to have plenty of time to do the job that I want to do on all the ways that I want to do it. But your personal experience and your research says that's not exactly how it goes. Yeah, it's not exactly how it goes um, in multiple ways. First, that um, social purpose. Uh, Yes, for our work to give us a sense of satisfaction and meaning, it has to, it it should align with our individual purpose, but that doesn't necessarily have to be having a social impact. And I do think it's important, and I share exercises in the book to help people identify for themselves, what are those sort of higher order goals? What ultimately drives you? What intrinsically are you working for? What is what is your purpose? But it doesn't have to be what your organization or company states as their mission. Um, it can be it can be what you identify it as being. Uh, For example, I, um, in doing uh, the exercise, the five whys exercise that I described, I identified as a business school professor. The description of my job is to conduct research um, and teach. And I have sort of dug into through asking myself, why is that important for me personally is I am driven to create knowledge about what makes people happy and disseminate knowledge about what makes people happy. And that being very clear on that is a source of fulfillment, but you don't see on UCLA Anderson's website anywhere that that's their job or their our shared mission, that's mine. So that's one thing, it, and it doesn't have to have this sort of broad social impact. Um, the other is that it's not about having a whole lot of time available to fulfill your purpose or having a whole lot of time available to uh, sort of invest in yourself outside of work. Um, And we looked at actually what is the relationship between the amount of time you have available and one sense of satisfaction and happiness. Um, And I can absolutely get into our findings and answers there because I think it's really interesting. Um, Also, I do want to sort of touch back uh, to what I mean when I'm using even the term happiness. Mm -hmm. And what I am talking about is what we refer to in the literature, um, the subjective well-being. So there is both that emotional component, having more positive emotion in your days, in your experience than negative. I think about it as joy, feeling joy in the moments that you're spending, but also it's that satisfaction about. So there's this evaluative cognitive component as well. Um, So not only feeling happy in the time you're spending, but also feeling satisfied about your days, satisfied about your life overall. And those very much move together. There are instances where you can feel enjoyment and not satisfaction. And I, when I'm talking about even about satisfaction, that's closely con- um, tied to the construct of meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, is there are instances where you can feel enjoyment but not satisfied, and you know having a sense of meaning, or you know having a sense of meaning without feeling happy in the moment. But what I'm in the work that I am. Uh, 
advising people towards and guiding and how we invest our hours, ideally you're spending on something that both gives you joy and that feels satisfying. And that's where you get this sense of satisfaction and fulfillment and happiness from the hours um, that we spend. Okay. So do I need 15 hours in every day where I'm having joy and satisfaction? Mm. Or do I need 15 minutes in every day where I'm having joy and satisfaction at the same time? Yeah. Um, And so this is our uh, investigation into what is the relationship between that amount of discretionary time folks have and their happiness. And I want to point out that this research was born out of a very personal experience for me early in my career uh, when I was an assistant professor uh, at Wharton. And it was one of these just very hectic days that so many can relate to, where I had happened to go up to New York that day from Philly to give a talk, and my talk was sandwiched within back-to-back meetings. And then I rushed to this networking dinner afterwards, and then rushing to make the very last train that would get me home to my four-month-old and my husband, who are asleep in Philly. And I remember so vividly on the train that night that... I like was looking out the window in the darkness sort of whizzing by and I just felt exhausted and stressed and seeing that blur of passing, I was like, I don't know if I can keep up between the pressures of work, trying to be a good parent, trying to be a good partner, trying to be a good friend, the never ending pile of chores. There simply weren't enough hours in the day to get it all done let alone to do any of it well, let alone to enjoy any of it along the way. And in that unhappy state, (laughs) I was like, the answer is obvious. I need to quit. I need to quit my job. And then move, you know, this daydream of like, I'll quit my job and move to a sunny island somewhere where I'd have all the hours of my days to spend exactly how I wanted because then I would be happier. And I'm so many people share this daydream and this idea that if only I had a whole lot more time, then I would be happier. And so <laughs> before I quit my sort of dream job that I'd worked so hard for, I was like, actually, is that true? Like, is it that people with a whole lot more time are happier? And this is an empirical question and one as a social psychologist that I could absolutely test. So I tested it with some of my favorite collaborators, Hal Hirschfield, Marissa Sharif. And we looked at, we ran a bunch of studies as well as analyzed data from the American Time Use Survey that looks at for tens of thousands of working as well as non-working Americans, how they spent a regular day. And from that, we could calculate how much time did they spend on discretionary activities, activities that um, the vast majority of people are things that they quote unquote want to do. That's discretionary versus non-discretionary are things we have to do, our obligations. And what we found was interesting. The pattern of results in a, across the studies and in this data set showed an upside down U-shape, like an arc or a rainbow, suggesting that, showing that it's going down on both sides of the spectrum. 
So with too little time, like me on the train that night, like I'm sure a lot of your listeners, a lot of your clients, with too little time, we are less happy. And in that data set, it looks like less than approximately two hours of discretionary time in the day, people were less happy. And that is something that we can all sort of relate to because of higher levels of stress, right? But what I didn't predict and which speaks directly to that daydream of like quitting and moving to the sunny island was the other side of the spectrum. We found that in this data set, at least with folks with more than approximately five hours of discretionary time in the day, we're also less happy. And that's interesting in digging into why, um, what our data suggests is that, maybe not surprisingly, once I start saying it, we are driven to be productive. We are averse to being idle. And so when we spend all the hours of our days, days upon days, this isn't like vacation, this isn't you know a weekend, days upon days with nothing to show for how we spent that time, it undermines our sense of purpose. And from that, we feel less satisfied. Now, yes, ways of spending time, uh, it's not just paid uh, work that can contribute to our sense of purpose. So can volunteer work, so can engaging in an enriching hobby. But I realized that for me, my work is actually a great source of purpose. Yes, there's aspects of my job I don't love, but connecting with students, conducting research, I, I do love that. Um, and so the answer <laughs> is not to quit. The answer is not to quit your job. And also recognizing between two and five hours of discretionary time, it's actually the relationship was flat. So it's like I said, a rainbow, but it's like a rainbow with a flat top, um, which suggests that between a pretty wide range, there is actually not a relationship between how much available time you have and your happiness, which speaks to it's actually more about how you invest the time that you have that is important for happiness. And that's what I am looking at and have explored and researched. And um, I talk about in the book, our strategies. Okay, how do we invest our hours to make it so that we're looking back on our weeks and feel fulfilled. It's not about being time rich. It's about making the time we have rich. Now, also relevant to, I think, listeners is at first there might be this sort of sense of like two hours. That sounds like totally out of reach, right? Like it sounds so indulgent, so unlikely two hours of your day to spend exactly how you want like no way, right? But actually, if you, and even me going back to that point on the night on the train, like reflecting on even that very busy time with a young baby, uh, uh, very demanding career uh, partner, et cetera, I calculated, honestly, I was like, okay, well, I had 15 minutes in the morning of cuddling with my little baby then at work, there were minutes that I was, minutes, I will say, because I wasn't as purposeful in how I spent my time at that point that were actually quite satisfying. But then on my walk home, talking to my best friend for 20 minutes, sitting down with my husband for dinner and little baby next to us, that's another half hour. And then 20 minutes where it took my son up and would 
sing him to sleep. That adding those together, those that's a 90 minutes, an hour and a half that even in my busiest time, I would not have wanted to spend in any other way. And so that suggests that two hours is actually not totally out of reach. And that's encouraging too. It's really going back to this. It's not about how much time you have available. And there is such thing as having too much. So given the hours that we do have available, how do we decide, make decisions of how to spend it, both the activities, the particular activities, um, as well as how we are mentally engaged in those activities. So since we're spending the time, make the most of that time you're spending so that we look back on our time and feel satisfied and without regret. Right. So when you say two hours of discretionary time, you don't mean two hours that I have no idea what I'm going to do with and I can just wander free form. For some people, that might be the case. But you mean two hours where I'm doing what I most want to be doing in my day, what brings me a sense of satisfaction, joy, if you will, and just two hours. Exactly. I think is really a cool thing. Um, one of the other things I love in your book is you make a big point about how much time we waste. <laughs> caused me to stop and reflect, yeah, there's time I waste in my day. Does it bring me joy? Maybe, maybe not. What I counted is part of my two-hour time. Uh, I could put something else in there, maybe. But if you stop to think about all the 15 minutes here and 15 minutes there, that you do something to avoid doing stuff you don't want to do. It doesn't take long to add another 30 or 45 minutes of discretionary time, meaning time to do stuff that you really love. That's at least what I took away from the book. Yeah. And I think I would love to share an analogy that I think is really sticky and highlights the importance of not wasting time. And wasting time, we, we can talk about how you identify what are your ways yep. of wasting time, because it's not like me being like, you shouldn't spend time on you know social media or whatever it is. Um, it is, and it, so this analogy is one that I continue to touch back on when I think about my time spending decisions and is really beautifully presented in a short film that I present to my students on the very first day of class. And in the film, a professor walks into his classroom and on the front desk, he puts a large clear jar. And then from a bag on the side, he pulls out golf balls and he pours the golf balls into the jar such that they reach the very top. And he asks his students, is the jar full? And since the golf balls are reaching the very top, the students nod their head, yes, the jar looks full. It's like, nope. From the bag, he pulls out a bunch of pebbles and he pours the pebbles into the jar and the pebbles fill all those spaces around the golf balls, reaching the very top. And he asks the students again, is the jar full? The students nod because yes, the jar looks full. And they're like, nope. From the bag, he pulls out a bunch of sand and he pours the sand into the jar and the sand fills all of that space between the golf balls, between the pebbles up to the very top. And he asks the students again, is the jar full? And the students by this point are laughing and they're like, yes, the jar looks full. And then <laughs> there's one more step. He sort of pulls out from the bag, two bottles of beer. He opens one, pours it into the jar and he opens the other. He goes, perches himself on the front of the desk and he takes a sip of the beer and he starts to explain, this jar is the time of your life. 
those golf balls are all those things that really matter to you. Your relationships with your family, your friendships, that work that you do that is in line with your purpose, your passions. The pebbles are the other things in your life, like job and house. The sand is everything else. The sand is all of that stuff that fills your time without you even noticing or recognizing it. And what's really important to know is that had he put the sand into the jar first, all of the golf balls would not have fit. And so that shows us that if we let our time get filled, it will get filled. You know, the never ending inbox, the never ending requests, the meetings, the committee, you know, think like the um, scrolling social media, watching the, like if our time, if we let our time get filled, it will get filled. But with that, we won't have time for the things that really matter to us, for our golf balls, those relationships, that time for the work that really does matter to us. Um, And then one of the students asked, well, professor, what's the deal with the beer? And he's like, I'm glad you asked. The beer shows that no matter how busy your schedule seems and how full your time, you will always have time for a drink with a friend. And so that picks up on that there are these things that we do have to make time for, even after our schedule is filled, um, for some things that truly matter. Now, the reason I think this is so helpful as an analogy is that it highlights that we need to identify for ourselves, what are our golf balls? What are those things that matter? so that we can prioritize them, put them into our schedules and protect the time, make sure that we spend the time or else we won't have the time because our time will get filled with all of these other things. Um, And that ensures that even, you know, at the end of the week, we will be busy, right? We will be busy and, uh, we, we don't want all of that discretionary time, but looking back on the week, even if busy, instead of feeling that depleted and overwhelmed and exhausted and unhappy like I did on the train that night, I can look back on the week and be like, yes, I was busy, but I feel full because I have invested in those relationships, because I did make progress on the work that really matters to me. Um, it's that awful sense of looking back on the weeks when we're busy but it was all sand, right? Right. That's the worst thing that we need to program against. Um, And then the question is, what are golf balls? What is the sand that we have to be sort of wary of? And I share uh, exercises in the book for to help folks identify for themselves, what is their golf ball? What is their sand? Yeah, I think um, if I think about the executives that have hugely demanding jobs, and to have what they would describe as the best work-life balance, which is not, I have a ton of discretionary time running around to do whatever I want to do. Their days are full like everybody else's day is full. But they are very crystal clear, both at work and privately, what are the things that really matter the most to me? And how do I make sure that those happen? Mm -hmm. So even at work, 
Like what are the most important meetings? What are the most important team members? What are the most important clients? And how am I making sure I have time for those without letting a bunch of other stuff just come in and chew up my time and I don't do what I really need to be doing? So it's really good. So Cassie, this is a perfect place to take a break on that teaser of what are the golf balls? What are the pebbles? What's the sand in your life? I want to come back and talk about the exercises and how you get people to go through to identify some of those golf balls. And then I want to talk about one of the things that I think is most interesting, which is your notion of crafting time. But we'll do that after the break. My guest today, Cassie Holmes, professor at the UCLA San Anderson School of Management, award-winning teacher and researcher. And the book we're talking about is Happier Hour. And we'll be right back. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, helping organizations get it and keep it. Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Cassie Holmes. The book we're talking about is Happier Hour. And the core concept here is having more happiness, meaning subjective well-being, which means positive emotions that are greater than the negative emotions, as well as a sense of satisfaction about our life and how we spend our days. That means something close to meaning. Those are the two things that constitute happiness. And notice now happiness isn't everything is always positive. It means that positive outweighs negative. I think that's an important distinction. And as it turns out from Cassie's research and from her personal experience, 
having discretionary time, meaning time that is doing what I want to do, things that make me happy and a sense of fulfillment, giving meaning to me, is actually essential for having a sense of happiness. What's lovely about this is it's only two hours, somewhere between two and five hours day of discretionary time where I'm doing what I want to do as opposed to what I have to do is what gives people that strong sense of happiness. And while that may sound impossible, when you actually look at what you're already doing, I suspect you're probably not very far off of it. So now it's a matter of getting intentional, as we were just talking about with the analogy of putting golf balls followed by pebbles followed by sand into a big jar. If you identify your golf balls first, then it's a whole lot easier to put the pebbles and the sand in. And the sand is the stuff that is just going to fill your time regardless, but doesn't necessarily give you any sense of meaning. So Cassie, you have some lovely exercises in the book, highly recommended on how to understand what are the golf balls? What are the things that really matter to you that give you that sense of happiness and fulfillment that we've been talking about? How do you get people to identify those? Yeah. Well, one uh, exercise that is incredibly valuable um, is tracking your time. So researchers track folks' time. So looking over the course of people's days, how there's what activities they're doing, as well as how they're feeling. So researchers can pull out on average, what are those activities that tend to be associated with the most positive emotion that are the most satisfying and happy? What are those activities that tend to be associated with the most negative emotion. Um, and what the research shows is that on average, the most positive activities are those that socially connect us with others, whether physically, sort of intimately, as well as spending time with family and friends in a social context. Um, the least happy activities on average tend to be commuting, work hours, and at time spent doing housework. Now, it's important to know that this is based off of averages. So the average American, um, which might not be representative of you, so on average, people might not like their jobs, but there are absolutely people who feel a great sense of fulfillment from their work, which I can sort of happily say that I'm one of those. But I think that even more so, these are average instantiations of any one of these activities. So like, socializing. I'm sure you can identify for yourself. Yes, there are some times that you are socializing that are happy. There are others that actually aren't so fun. <laughs> and even looking at your work hours, there are some work hours that aren't at all <laughs> enjoyable. But then there are times at work that are truly enjoyable and joyful and satisfying. So what I encourage folks to do is to track their own time over the course of a week you might even do it over two weeks if you want to get a sort of more complete um, capturing of the types of activities that fill your time. Over the course of the week, write down for every half hour, what activity are you doing? And being more specific than just family time or work, talk about what are you doing with your family? What family members are there? What are you doing at work? What's that particular activity? And as importantly for each of... Um, coming out of each of these activities, rating on a 10-point scale, how satisfying, how happy was it? And, and there's a worksheet on uh, my website and more detailed instructions in the book um, that folks can use. But 
basically, well, admittedly, it's sort of tedious to write down what you're doing, rating over the course of the week. It's so helpful because at the end of the week, you have this fantastic personalized data set that you can look for yourself over the course. All right, what are those activities that were the best for me, that made me feel most satisfied? And also, what were some commonalities across those? You can pick up some really interesting things. I found, for instance, that it wasn't socializing that made me happy. It was actually one-on-one time where I had like real connection and conversation, whether it was with one family member, you know, on a date or with friends. It wasn't groups of friends. It was me having, hanging out with one particular friend, even actually in the workplace. I, I found that some of my happiest times were like having a really great conversation with a colleague. Um, so you can pick out what are those sort of commonalities across your most positive activities. And that's really illuminating. You can also see just how much time you're spending on your various activities. And this is where you sort of pick up on some some of your sand, right? You can be like, holy cow, when my students do this, they had no idea they spent so much time on social media. You know, they think it's just five minutes here, but those five minutes add up, you know, are like turn into a half hour. And then those half hours turn into um, like, you know, more than a dozen hours in their week. For me, it was actually email time. Um, I had no idea just how much time I spent responding to my inbox. Um And this is informative because, and then also when you see your ratings of how satisfying that time, it was, it's interesting because my students are very often like, I, you know, they, they're like, have this reflection, like, I thought being on social media was my fun time. Like they sort of think like, oh, I thought I really liked it. And that was me time. But then they look at their ratings and they feel, you know, it's like four or a five on their 10 point scale. Meanwhile, Activities that they quote unquote don't have time for that would get a nine, you know, or a 10, like meeting up with a friend after work for dinner or with your sister, or, you know, making that phone call to talk to your mom that you don't have time for. But when you do spend the time, you're like, wow, that was time really well spent. So with this data from your time tracking, it really like highlights opportunities, very low hanging fruit of like, oh, this is not satisfying time, nor is it necessary in many cases. I'm going to reallocate that time to make available for these other activities that are absolutely important, you know, that are your golf balls. Um, so I think time tracking is a very very informative um, exercise to start identifying sand as well as golf balls. There are two things about the time tracking, the way you approach time tracking that I think are really useful. So one is this notion that you record every half hour, what was I doing in that half hour? And you write it down. And then you give it this rating about how much joy or satisfaction does it give you? So I can begin to see. But you also make a point, just as you did now, that it's not just saying I was talking with a friend or I was on social media. It's being much more explicit or I was at work because, you know, some parts of work are fabulous and exciting and wonderful. So we need to know what it is. And other parts of work are sort of soul destroying. So what are those? We got to give more detail. So I can imagine for many people, 
let's say the drudgery of editing a PowerPoint is on the low end of the scale, whereas the excitement of generating the ideas for the PowerPoint could be on the high end of the scale. I'm speaking about myself and this process. (laughs) I like the creation. I don't like the detail filling in the gap. And other people may feel quite differently. So even with work, being very specific about what you're doing, I think is an interesting twist. And I can imagine doing this, even if you had to do it at the end of the day and say, well, how did I spend every 30 minutes? You know, even that would be better informative than nothing. Ideally, you do it throughout the day. Yeah. And to to that point, um, if you can't do it, you know, each half hour, it is sort of reflecting over the course of your day with the spreadsheet in front of you. So you're writing it down and you're rating. And that reflection is is what you need that. And that is very different than if I were to ask you, what activities do you like to do where people have these sort of vague notions um, of what they should like to do or that most people like to do? This is you reflecting back, having spent that time in very recent history and actually looking at how did I feel, not how do I think I would feel. Right. I think that's a really important one. Um, There is a lovely spreadsheet. This exercise is described in the book, Happier Hour, but you can also go to Cassie's website, CassieMHolmes.com and download it for free. Um, It'll give you a little bit of instructions and a template there to use to fill in about your week with the ratings and every other detail that you could imagine that you need a card accordingly. All right. So I like this notion of taking a really hard look at how we're spending the minutes. Okay. I like the idea that we give an in the moment rating of how did I feel doing that activity so I can look back and have a clearer sense of where my minutes are going and what is bringing me real joy and what isn't bringing me joy. And I'm looking for themes. All right. So now what do I do from there, Cassie? I've done this time tracking analysis. I see what's really giving me joy. I see what's not giving me joy. What do I do next? Yeah. So once you've seen, <laughs> all right, there, there's a few s- steps here, all working towards, at the end of it, time crafting. So mm-hmm. with these strategies, uh, actually, maybe before we go to the time crafting, is recognizing that there are going to be <laughs> things that you have to do. Like it, you've identified in your time tracking yeah, there's the sand that you don't have to do and it's not even fun. But then there are also those things that are not fun that you do have to do. Housework, unless you want housemates, partners, whomever lives with you to be very upset with you that you are not doing anything contributing to the house. There is housework. There's also getting to and from work. Uh, For many, there is a required amount of time commuting these days, maybe less than previously, but certainly there is time in the car or on the subway. Um, and the question is, okay, given that we have to spend this time, how do we make it less onerous? How do we make this time at least a little more happier and or a little happier? Um, a very simple but effective strategy is bundling. And this is coming out of research by Katie Milkman and her colleagues. And she talks about it as a way to motivate you to do the activity. I think it's very also effective to make the time that you're spending feel more worthwhile. Because really that's what we're going for is making maximizing the amount of time in our weeks that feel worthwhile, minimizing the amount that feels like a waste. Commuting often feels like a waste 
And it's so, it's so painful because you're like waiting to get through it. It feels like wasted minutes that you could be spending in other sort of more worthwhile ways. So bundling, take this activity you don't want to do and bundle it with another activity that you do enjoy. So commuting, why don't you listen to an audiobook? So when, you know, I do the work on feeling time poor, one of the first things that people, I, I'll have them complete the sentence, I don't have time to. And so I hear all the things that people wish they had time to do. Reading for pleasure is often noted as something we don't have time to do and wish we did. But if every time you got in the car or went on the subway, you turned on an audiobook, then every week or so you will have gotten through a book. Podcasts. The podcasts are these wonderful opportunities to learn and grow, and um, they're absolutely enriching. So if every time you get in the car, you turn on a podcast, or you're sitting down to like fold laundry, turn on a podcast, or turn on a show that you want to stream and nobody else in your family. And then all of a sudden, that time that you're spending in the car or folding the laundry feels itself more worthwhile. There has been more than one occasion that I actually am in the car and get to where I'm going, but I continue sitting in the car because I want to hear the end of the podcast or I want to hear what happens next. So that time all of a sudden becomes, feels more worthwhile and enriching. That other activity that for many shows up again on averages as our least happy is um, hours spent at work. Um, But we talked about the value of social connection, like genuine connection, friendship. Mm-hmm. And there's a uh, there are opportunities to bundle. So there's a, a funny uh, question uh, that was in the Gallup data a few years ago, which I love. And it's funny because it sounds like something my fourth grader would ask is, do you have a best friend at work? And the only even though this was pre-pandemic, only two out of 10 Americans reported that they have a best friend at work. Those who did were significantly more engaged. They liked their work more and job satisfaction um, translates into life satisfaction. Now, the question is, how can you develop genuine friendship at work? And to the extent that you can, then you're bundling that social connection with work hours such that, you know, you know, we talked, (laughs) I will continue to talk about email. Email is my sand. I do not enjoy email writing or responding in particular responding. Um, But if instead of responding to a collaborator on an email about next steps, what if I instead like asked him, let's grab coffee and discuss, then all of a sudden, that time feels more enriched and fun and positive and happier than if I were just responding to an email. So there's that opportunity for bundling as well. Now, all of this is sort of leading towards how do we craft or design our weeks so that we are doing what I said, optimizing the amount of time we spend in worthwhile ways, minimizing the amount of time we spend on sand. And if you think about your week, like the schedule as your, your blank canvas, as new mm-hmm. as the artist who's informed by science too, of how do you design it such that at the end of the week, you do feel fulfilled and satisfied. 
Well, first, there are these sort of structured things that do have to go in and you don't have control over the um, when you do them. But the first step, and I would say even beyond that, is putting your golf balls in. So for those things that you identified as really important for you, so like my coffee date with my daughter, it's 30 minutes, just the two of us, that goes in my schedule and it is protected. My fulfilling work time for me, it is writing. So I put that, those chunks of hours into my schedule. For me, it's also in the morning. So I talk about all the research around being thoughtful, even of where you place this stuff. Um, Some of us are more morning people. Some of us do our best work at night. I'm a morning person. So I carve out protect time on the mornings that I can during the week, which are usually only like one or two, protect it for my deep thinking work so I can get into flow. And then my meetings, which require a different sort of level of energy are in the afternoons, responding to email, that gets, that's the sand that had I not made time, like put the golf balls in, would just fill my entire weeks. Um, I talk about the importance of exercise. Um, this is an activity that oftentimes we don't feel like we have time for, but it's so important to make time for because it's a significant mood booster. It helps offset anxiety. And actually by increasing our sense of self, uh, self-efficacy, when we exercise, it actually makes us feel more confident that we can accomplish all those other things that we set out to do, lessening our sense of time poverty, that sense of limitation. So carving out time to exercise, carving out time to think, to strategize, you know, to not have meetings. So it's about putting the golf balls in first and then sand will fill all around it. Yeah, I can imagine a lot of people who are dealing with hundreds and 400 and 500 and more emails in a day or saying, how can I possibly not spend my time on emails? And my contention is if you start the first thing in the morning in the emails, you'll spend four hours easily, quickly without ever even batting. And you've taken your most productive time and used it against your least productive activity. That's my analogy. It's amazing those days when you don't have time to do your email in the morning, how much more quickly you can get through it after lunch, let's say. When there's a finite amount of time, I have an hour and I'm going to devote an hour to the email. And then I get strategic about what I read, what I respond to, how I handle it, what I follow up on. I'm in a whole bunch of things. I just think we have to learn to control the email, not have it control us. And what you're describing in this activity is getting really razor sharp on what I need to do for me and what I need to do for work. What are my golf balls at work? What are my golf balls for home? And I get them in and then I use the rest to kind of fit what I have to fit in. And it's amazing what will fit when you do that. Yeah. And I mean, to be honest, not all of it will fit, but that stuff is the low priority stuff. And it's, it's, much better that those sort of superfluous emails don't fit into your schedule than the golf balls, which would be what would happen otherwise. Right. 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 You give an example in your own schedule in the book where you say, look, there are some things I have to do, like there's a class I have to teach and I've got blocks where those are going to go. And I'm going to put those blocks in. 
those are in ways golf balls or pebbles, if you want. They're there. They can't go away. Hopefully, you're teaching courses that you like or some version of that one. But there are constraints. So put those in. But don't just discretionary, indiscretionately say, well, I've got meetings from eight to five, so I can't do anything from eight to five because it's going to be protected for meetings. That's not being smart about what are the most important meetings, the most enjoyable meetings, the most impactful meetings. It's that intentionality that I think, Cassie, is so powerful in the work that you're talking about. And I just will also say for anybody who's doubting it, there's a ton of research to back up each of these ideas not just Cassie's research, but a host of others. Yeah. And that's why it like the, the time crafting exercise is the second to last chapter, which, you know, we're sort of like touching on, but it's based off of like the entire book of insights and findings and strategies, and then pulling it all together such that you're devising and being intentional to your point, which is, I mean, that is, the most basic and first stuff and you get it gets you a lot of the way there but being intentional and so that you're spending your time pro- proactively identifying what's important to you making the time for it as opposed to what we are so our default is spending our time reactively of letting our time get filled by others by what seems urgent irrespective of the importance of that particular activity. This is about letting what's important drive where we spend our time and then everything else will fill in. Right. All right. As inspiration, two quotes from two executives that I have worked with, both of whom managed to do a lot of what Cassie has been described. One says, it's possible to come every day, come into the office every day, spend an incredible number of hours, be incredibly busy and get absolutely nothing important done. (laughs) So- you know, make a choice about that. Is it, are you spending your time for what matters? And he says that explicitly and talks explicitly about what he puts in the first thing of his day, the most productive thing of his day and how he tries to move the important ball forward a little bit every single day. The other one says, let's be honest, not every meeting is as important as every other meeting. So if it's not that important to you, what else are you doing with it? Can you skip it? Can somebody else go in your stead? Um, do you make once every month, uh, you know, what are these meetings that are really matter and how do you make sure that you're attending the ones that matter and not just filling your schedule with the rest of them? All right. So general principles. I have one last, we have like two minutes, Cassie, and I have one last question, which I think is a really interesting analogy that you talk about, particularly for some of the things that we feel like we can keep doing for forever, that we often have more finite time to do them than we ever recognize. Can you tell us your quick exercise on that one? Yeah. So if if I were to ask you to look back and identify your golf balls in the last couple of weeks, what are those moments that brought you most joy? Oftentimes it is very mundane, everyday experiences. And they're so everyday that we expect they will continue to happen every day. Um, but that is a wrong assumption. Just using the example of my coffee date with my daughter, this is 30 minutes that it is a routine that we've turned into a ritual. It is special. It is time for the two of us, but it doesn't seem urgent because she's just little and we do this every week. 
but I actually calculated the way to realize just how precious these times are is to calculate what proportion of your total times do you have left to do this? I calculated we've had about 400 coffee dates and our weekly coffee dates and um, daily during my maternity leave before that. And then, so how many have you done so far? Calculate how many are you going to have in the future, accounting for the fact that factors in your life will likely change. If your joyful activity involves someone else, factors in their life will likely change. I calculated that Lita and I, between she's seven now, when she turns 12, she'll rather go to the coffee shop with her friends than me. She's going to go off to college. Then she's probably going to live in New York, you know, across the country from me. I calculate we have about 230 coffee dates together left. That is 36% of our total, less than half. And she's only seven years old. What does that make me do? Well, it makes me prioritize this time. That 30 minutes, that coffee day is a golf ball. It goes into my schedule first. I protect it. Meetings get scheduled around it. We are not saying yes to other social obligations until we have had that time for the two of us together. So it's about prioritizing, making the time. But even more than that, it is realizing how limited these times are. It makes me pay attention because another factor that we didn't talk a whole lot about is our mindset during this time. We are so often distracted. Research shows that we are 47%, almost half of the time, we are not thinking about what we are currently doing. Now, if you're spending the time on something that brings you such joy, For me, with my daughter, the two of us, and I'm distracted, the presence of my phone that is making me think about all the other things I can and should be doing, my mental to-do list that's also capturing all of that, that needs to get quieted. The phone goes away, that to-do list gets quieted so that I am in the moment paying attention because I recognize that this is the time that matters. This is these minutes are the sort of fabric of my life. And also I think it's really important to note for folks wrapping, like sort of touching back to the theme that we talked about at the beginning. It's not about how much time you have available, nor even how much time you spend on these activities. It is how you engage in that time to make it more rich. That 30 minutes with my daughter The impact of it extends well beyond the time we're spending during it. We look forward to it. Then we reflect back on it. We talk about it. It comes into the narrative of of my happiness. And when I am saying, am I satisfied? Am I happy? That is what I'm picking up on. And it's about having invested the time in the way that it matters. What I love about that, Cassie, is it's 30 minutes. It's not two hours. It's 30 minutes and it goes into that bucket of the two hour discretionary time in the day. And that makes it start to feel like it's much more doable than any of us thought before. Cassie, sadly, we're out of time. The book is called Happier Hour. You can learn more about Cassie at our website at Cassie M. Holmes, spelled C-A-S-S-I-E-M-H-O-L-M-E-S.com. And I think the thing that just blows my mind away is the thinking about this two hours in every given day that I'm doing what I find joyful and finding, making sure that I'm doing that, making sure that I'm protecting those two hours and I'm not wasting hours, minutes, in effect, 
that could go to something that's more joyful. So Cassie, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. Thank you. And join us next week for another episode in getting out of your comfort zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week. Thank you.